Hey, this is Mike and Tom from Ballpark Bros. You're listening to another great show on the Four Eyed Radio. Check us all out on FourEyedRadio.com. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. You swear they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Eric, are you verily ready for Doth's book? And Ver- movie. Verily, I am. Verily. Verily. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to uh, the Crichton cast and today's 13th Warrior uh, slash Eaters of the Dead. I guess Eaters of the Dead first, then 13th Warrior for the movie. Yes. Uh, yes. Evidently, Eaters of the Dead was too dark and depressing a title, I, I, I guess, so they had to change it for the movie quite dramatically. Um and the changing of the title was actually Michael Crichton's idea, so it wasn't like some, uh, um, you know, studio didn't want it or something like that. Apparently it was his idea because uh, um, Eaters of the Dead, uh, during filming, people would ask him, what are you working on? And they say, what? What's it called? And then he repeated the title, and most people would say, um, I don't want to see that, or I'll skip that one because, uh, <laughs> yeah, Eaters of the Dead just seems like the kind of cannibal movie you don't want to get into. So 13th Warrior it was, and 13th Warrior actually does work pretty well. Though I don't think the book was ever re-released as 13th Warrior. As far as I could find, it was always published as uh, Eaters of the Dead. Yeah, I don't believe, I, I believe they may have published a version with, like, now a major motion picture and, like, had oh, the sure. name, like, of the, of the movie somewhere on there as well. But no, I don't. I don't believe they ever actually republished the book under the new title. Although yep. it does make a, a somewhat sense, I think, because if you really think about it, both the book and the film are more about this person who was the thirteenth warrior in this group than it is about the actual uh, the Wendells or the the people who they call the Eaters of the Dead. So, right. I mean, it does make some amount of sense to to title the the <laughs> the, the story about who the main character really is. Right, and I, I'm flipping through. The, I've got the book in front of me, and I'm flipping through. And um, as far as length, you know, it's only 258 pages long, so this isn't an entirely like tough book to get through. Um, you know, it only took me a couple of evenings to read through this. But the part to get through that's tough is the introduction and kind of the first like prologue chapter where um, all the names and everything. It kind of felt like I was reading like Leviticus out of the Bible or something <laughs> like that for a bit. And um, and I I made the mistake, uh, and Eric said that it wouldn't help, and he was very much so right, of listening to the audiobooks. I thought, oh, this will help me with the pronunciation of some of these names. No, no. Even hearing them <laughs> um, and then watching the movie, 
I still don't get all the pronunciation of some of these names. So that was a tough one to read through there. Yeah, the names I started kind of skipping over, kind of glossing over the names as I read um, mm-hmm. because you know they weren't even in my head. I wasn't you know actually pronouncing them or attempting to pronounce them. So it's it's just a, a lot of very strange names. It's not just one. You know, it's a whole lot of very odd names. Right. And, uh, you know, to the credit of the, the person who did read the audiobook, I'm sure he did a fantastic job. But even with the audiobook, as I listened, I did kind of tune out the names as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and some of that had to do with the fact that I already had read the book. So, you know, I didn't really need the, the audiobook names to, to know what the story was going on and who was doing what. Um, one thing I did like about the audiobook that I felt was made it a little bit easier to understand than the than the printed book was that they actually read the footnotes along with the story with the story right yeah instead of having them at the end of each chapter and that's how I read it when I read it I read it as it was printed I read through it and then I read the footnotes and occasionally mm. I even had to like oh I didn't remember they had a note about that what is he talking about and I had to flip back and look and see what that note applied to right. um in the case of the audiobook they jump to the footnote wherever it's noted so you immediately get you know if if it's a clarification of something that was said or you know at one point they're talking about using cow urine as a cleaner and you know they at the end of the chapter they talk about how well urine has ammonia in it and when they do what they you know how they boil it down and everything they end up with ammonia which is actually a very good cleaning product and when you get that like boom boom right there in the story it does make things I thought originally it would make it it would break up the story and take me out of it, but it didn't. It actually helped, I think, understand the flow a little bit better, having those footnotes in there like that. But it would have been a real pain as, while I'm reading, especially since I was reading on an ebook, to to try to jump ahead to the end of the chapter to read the footnote in the middle of the chapter. So I was thankful okay. that they did it that way in the audiobook because it did make things a little smoother, I think. No, and I agree with you, and I was going to ask you what version of it you're reading because um, in I've got one of the they didn't they published the paperback on this in 1976, but I want to say it was the 90s when they first published the paperback. Um, yeah, paperback published in 1998. So I have a I have a in fact Valentine Books edition October 1998. So I have a paperback version of it, and it's written just like the um, audiobook. So the footnotes are right in the middle of the chapter. So oh, I was okay. reading the footnotes as I was. Well, like I said, I had the the ebook it. version. Um, I'm not okay. sure. Unfortunately, I don't have I don't have it in front of me right now, or I'd pull up the uh, the publishing so, notes. But they had all the footnotes in the very end they of it the on the pu- ebook. Yeah, they oh. had the at the end of each chapter. Okay, they had the footnotes See, at the end of like, each chapter. Yeah, the cow urine thing, like boom, there's the footnote for hey, this is what I'm talking about. So, and I loved that because usually I'll skip and not read the all the footnotes at the end of the chapters, but this way, kind of, it was like, oh, well, it's right there. I might as well read it. And sure enough, um, but they had those on the same pages, which was nice. Um, I didn't realize this till I'm reading the beginning of this. Now, if you read the end of the book, and uh, this is probably more what we're talking about, is the sources and the factual mm-hmm. note on the Idris of the Dead. There's some great stuff at the end. But even in the beginning, there is this uh, little paragraph with, along with all the uh, uh, publication stuff. The material contained in the first three chapters is substantially derived from the manuscript of Ibn Filan as translated um, by these guys. And the uh, um, Arabic jokes are substantially derived from translations. All these scholarly works are gratefully acknowledged. So I thought it was very neat that at the end of this, 
he talks about how the first three, how he came up with the idea, and we'll talk about that in a bit here. Mm-hmm. But how the first three chapters are such factual accounts, and then the rest of it, you know, it kind of he had to take liberties for what he was doing and how he was trying to get the story across. Mm-hmm. And then he even makes a note at the very end. Um, how, under the circumstances, I should perhaps say explicitly that the references in this afterwards are genuine. The rest of the novel, including its introduction, text, footnotes, and bibliography, should properly be viewed as fiction. Because he didn't want anybody to say, take, you know, um, <laughs> what he was doing and make it as a um, as truth. And right. part of that was because the there were people who did not like his take on Beowulf and thought that he was ruining um, a perfectly good piece of poetry. Yeah, that's uh, there. There were some people who were uh, complained about that. Um, my complaints about this book have nothing to do with that whatsoever, <laughs> and more to do just with I, I did not enjoy this particular style of writing. Um, as you said, it was short, uh, so it was fairly quick to get through, but it was not easy to get through. It did not lend itself to long reading sessions. You know, I, I had to actively, you know, set aside time and be like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to sit down and read this now. I had to right. to set that time aside and be like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to read this. It is most likely a book that had I not been doing this for the show, I may not have finished it. I may not have uh, you know, I may have put it aside. In fact, I'm trying to recall, you know, I know I'd gone back through and I I feel like I I feel like I did read this all the way through uh, in the past. Right. But I don't you know, know for sure if it was just a, a situation of it was the only book I had on hand, so I, you know, had to finish it, <laughs> or if it was, or if maybe I had uh, set it aside at some point. But um, yeah, I, I was not a big fan of the style of writing, um, the consistent, you know, the the every fourth word being verily got verily tiring after a verily short amount of time. Um, it just. It seemed to drag a little bit, and I understand why he wrote it the way he wrote it, and he talks about why why he wrote it that way, but he specifically wrote it with the intention of it being seen as like this uh, third-party view of this situation that was kind of bland and outside of it, as opposed to if it was one of the, you know, if it had been written from the point of view of one of the Northmen. Then it would have been, you know, oh, this is fantastic, and this is, you know, it would have been puffed up and not as realistic, perhaps, but it probably would have been more entertaining. Mm-hmm. And he was specifically trying to avoid that. He didn't want, he wanted it to come across as if it was factual, which is, I, I totally understand, but for me, it didn't, it didn't work as well right. as a novel. You know, looking at it as an exercise in writing, it's, uh, it's fantastic. It's it's amazing what he did, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after we talk about the movie, I'm sure. Um, but you know, for what he was trying to do, I think he did a fantastic job right. for writing an interesting novel that I would want to actively read and 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 reread. Not so much. No, and you can tell that if you look at my paperback collection of Michael Crichton books. Like this is the this is the one that um, does not have as many bent pages. You can tell it hasn't been open as much. Where like timeline and sphere, you know, they're falling apart. No, Eaters <laughs> of the Dead still in pretty good 1998 condition. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those ones you, you put in the collection, but you don't necessarily read it. Yeah, it's it's a little tougher to get through. And like I said, if you look at it from an academic standpoint, if you look at it from you know, he talks about how. He came about writing it and how, you know, parts of it he went back to to find the source material for. 
and did hours of searching only to realize, oh, that was a part I made up. That wasn't a part that I actually sourced from something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you know, as an exercise in in a style of writing and to show what a competent writer he actually is in, in the ability to do this, it, it's a fantastic case study. Um, it's just not as as great a story <laughs> to read. You know, in my opinion, anyway, I know there are people who disagree with us uh, on this one. There are people who actually uh, enjoy this book quite a bit. We, we've had some people reach out to us through our various uh, social media on uh, Twitter and Facebook and let us know that this is actually one of their uh, more enjoyed books. Uh, yeah, no, and um, and I'd have to agree with you for the most part, Eric. Like, it is a great, um, great read from the challenge aspect and from like a writing challenge, but it is, um, it just, it's just not. Not my style of book, and it's just it's very different from what you would expect from a Michael Crichton book. Now, I almost feel like it's over-scienced if you took science and made it history. You know, like it's over-history. Um, mm-hmm. I like the character, um, uh, even Falan, the, uh, Antonio Banderas' character from the movie. <laughs> I, I like in the book that what's his character story arc in the book because he really is just somebody that's watching everything and you feel like you are sort of reading his notes on what's going on Mm -hmm. and he talks about that and he says that many times you know in the novel that you know i saw this with my own eyes so you know he's very much so watching it and he's not getting that involved but then by the very end in the last few chapters he's almost becoming like these northmen because he's very involved in what they do in their um their rituals and specifically some of the words he says during the final um uh, funeral that you th- realize, oh, now he's kind of accepted their practices where before he was just on the outside just watching them and noting them down from a historical standpoint. Yes, and there's definitely a shift in tone in the book at, you know, when he starts to become more like them. And he, and he notes it even as it's happening. But you do notice the shift in writing style as well, which again shows, you know, like I said, this is this is a case study in writing for sure because it right. definitely shows, you know, he's got this very clinical outsider's view and then he's he's thrust into these conditions where he's basically, you know, on threat of his life. He, he has to join this band of warriors to go do this. He doesn't want to, but it's, you know, it's that or be killed by them right there. So it's like, well... You know, take the take the fifty fifty shot of living, or take the zero percent chance of living. What are you going to do? Um, but then, as it progresses, and as he becomes more uh, a part of their group, you can feel the narrative start to shift, and he starts to you know y- you can feel how it, he starts to become more involved in the story. Um, mm-hmm. That is, of course, when he's not you know over in the corner puking. <laughs> <laughs> Which. <clears throat> Thank God in the movie, I only recall it happening once because I swear at the end of every chapter in the book for a while there, that's what he was doing was purging himself. Yes. I'm like I never you – know, like, he only mentions eating once or twice, but man, he's purging himself a lot. Good gosh, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. At some point, you've yeah. got to be becoming a little desensitized to this stuff. You know, Come on. You're, you're going to see some weird stuff out there. Um, yeah, it, it was a little uh, disturbing. But at the same time, you know, it, it fit, you know, the character, the character did what, what you would think that this character would do in this situation. So, you know, like I said, uh, the story itself, I don't find that intriguing or, or interesting, but the writing, you know, that's, that's kind of how I had to look at it. Cause I'm like, okay, I know I'm not going to be thrilled with this story. You know, I read the story. I know the story, you know, many people know this story. It's essentially the story of Beowulf, uh, one of the as as uh, 
is noted in the back. It, it, the English professor had noted it as one of the great bores. <laughs> I know there's tons of people who love it. Uh, I was forced to read it in high school, and I looked at it as one of those things that, yeah, if I wasn't forced to read this for school, there is no chance that I would have spent my time reading this. <laughs> not a <Right>. chance. <laughs> um, so, you know, we know the story. It's not something that's, you know, new or uh, exciting in that sense. So I started looking at it, especially the second time through listening to it, as opposed to, you know, because I'd read through it, and then I read the, the end where he t- talks about how he wrote it. And I don't recall ever reading that before, so I don't know if when I read it when I was younger, if I just skipped that, like I just didn't read the, the end, or if I had a version, because I'd probably picked it up from the library. Maybe I had an older version that didn't have that addendum at the well, end there. Well, um, and um, to sorry to interrupt, but the first edition of this did not have that addendum. Uh, very specifically because he made up the uh, Amatusi manuscript that it supposedly translated um, that the story all came up. He made that up, and uh, for some time after the first publication, the University of Oslo librarians had to send out letters of people who were inquiring <laughs> about this manuscript because they were the victim of a hoax. And so the second edition of the novel... That's where they add a factual note and the this end stuff. So, yeah, if you had a first edition, you may not have had that because he pretty much had to say, oh, by the way, and the um, these names and this is all, you know, a made up thing. And he had to explain that really just the first three chapters are where I got stuff from. <laughs> it's like the the end of the uh, at the end of any movie. The characters and stories in this film are not based on real events and any similarities should be considered right. coincidental. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so I. Yeah. I just don't remember if I hadn't read that or what. But when I was re-listening to it after having read that, I really took a more uh, clinical approach and was was more dissecting the way it was written. <clears throat> and I think I appreciated it more that way because I, again, I was just looking at you know, okay, so the first three chapters are based on this actual manuscript, and if you didn't. You know, if it didn't have chapter breaks, you know, telling you here's the start of a new chapter, you wouldn't know where that change was. He did such a good job of continuing the same writing style from the factual information into the story that you don't notice the change. What you do notice right. is the change in narrative as the character changes, and that makes sense because the character who's writing it, you know, the narrator of the story is going through these events, so you expect him to change as that goes, and it does. So, like I said, it's just absolute brilliant writing. Um, just not a particularly interesting book. <laughs> it's one of those things. I, I look at it similar to um, uh, what's that show, uh, the political one that everybody seems to love. It's got Kevin Spacey in it. Uh, House of Cards. Uh, House of Cards, yeah. House I watched of cards. A, I watched the first couple episodes of that when it first came out. And I looked at it and said, wow, this is amazingly written. This is beautifully acted. Even the cinematography I recognized as being good. I'm like, man, this is just a well-made show. And I mm-hmm. could not be less interested. <laughs> it just did not <laughs> grab my – like the story just did not grab my attention. I'm like, I just don't care. Uh, it's right. wonderfully done. I, I appreciate yeah. all of the work that went into this, but I just it just doesn't do it for me. And, and that's kind of where I look at this book as. It's absolutely brilliantly done, but I don't care. There you go. And and and, and that's probably perfectly perfectly said right there. And probably a good spot for us to transition into the film. <laughs> <laughs> because there there's not a lot else. It, it's very well done. Well, we should talk about, I guess, um, a little bit more on the dare do we want to do that now, or do we want to talk about the movie first and then jump back over to talk about the... No, let's just jump into the movie, because uh, I'm going to be honest, Eric, after finishing the movie, um, and uh, 
I liked this movie way more the second time than I did the first time around remembering. I remember when I first watched this movie, uh, and I did not watch it in the theaters or anything like that, so I'm sure I just rented it from uh, the good old days of Blockbuster back in you know late 99 or early 2000 or something. I remember hating this movie. I remember not knowing what was going on, thinking it was just a horrible thing. But, man, I tell you what, watching it last night, and I don't know if it's just my change in type of movie, but I totally got into this. This was like the soundtrack was great. This was like um, Elder Scrolls Skyrim. This was this was like good adventure. Um, it's not the best movie ever, but this movie is definitely better than the book. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think we're, we're going to have to disagree a little bit here because I yes, did not finally. like this movie any more <laughs> this time around than I did the first time. And I remember disliking this movie very much the first time around. Um, I think I'm excited now because I feel like we've agreed too much on other stuff. So I love the fact that. All right, tell me what you hated about or what you disliked about this movie. Then, well, first of all, there's Antonio Banderas, who I'm not. Why a do huge... we not like Antonio Banderas? <laughs> I'm just not. Honestly, anything he's done outside of Puss in Boots, I'm not a big fan of his work. I'm just you, never, you never didn't been like a big his fan. Zorro or anything <laughs> no, in the 90s. Gosh, I mean, no. I mean, we're, we're. I mean, this was like 99, right? So this is like kind of the the peak of uh, what he did before he fell into whatever the 3D stuff on the movies were. Oh man, uh, no, that oh those Zorro films, oh. Oh, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Really, right there. I mean, you take Desperado Jones out of that, and, and <laughs> not even worth giving a glance. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> no, I just I, I don't I don't feel that he's as good an actor as he got the work for. <laughs> like, I don't understand sure. what that is. I'm not yeah. understanding exactly why they cast a. Uh, I, I don't know why they cast him as as an Arab character. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, is I is Hollywood just like ah? He's a little bit darker than the rest of us. He must be able to play this part. Um, <laughs> I'm like that's just that's just rough. Um, right. There were a couple other things where they strayed from the story a bit. Like I understood they're not going to get the nuances that I appreciated from the book as far as how it was written and stuff like that. You know, so we're dealing mm. with essentially just the story, which I, as I as I already said, I, I felt was kind of not necessarily boring, but just kind of. Well, I guess yeah, kind of boring. It's kind of dull. It's it's a it's a very small story, and so in order to make a small story something big, it really takes fantastic acting and direction. And I didn't I didn't feel that we had that. In fact, you know, I watched this after having read the book. You know, immediately after having read the book, and there were a few things that made a little bit more sense. You know, right. when they have the when they have the duel, uh, for example. I did not just watching the movie by itself. I did not get the nuance of that at all. You know, it's just, okay, all of a sudden they're fighting, and he's got three shields lined up. Why does he have three shields lined up? We have no idea. Well, in the book, we're told why he has three shields lined up. They have a structure to this duel. It's not just uh, grab all the shields you can find and put them over here, and we'll play around until you've broken them all. No, it's it's a tradition. It's part of, this is how it works. You have this space blocked off, and that's something they didn't do in the movie, was actually stretch a canvas or a skin over the area and say you have to stay in this area. But they did have the three shields, and you know, in the book, it's dis- it's described. You have the three shields. If you once your shields are broken, then you are on your own, and it's to the death, obviously. Um, right. And there's more. I-, I felt there's more nuance in the book description of this fight than there was in the actual filming of it. You know, the the filming of it was it was interesting. It was it was fairly well done, but it, I, you didn't get the full sense of the deception. 
that he was putting on this show of being, oh, I'm so tired and I'm getting beat down by this big guy. And uh, um, it also didn't, I don't think it translated the nuance of why he started that fight in the first place. You know, it felt like it was just a random occurrence in the movie as opposed to this is a tactical move that we're making right here so that the that the king and specifically the king's son know that we mean business and we will own his stuff if he uh, tries anything. Um, I don't so, feel that translated in the movie as well. See, and so I think we I we definitely watched two different movies then, in my opinion, <laughs> because I thought that that translated um, just fine. Now, I do agree if you didn't know what was going on, you just you saw his three shields and then you saw three other shields and nobody's explained to you what the shields are all about. Now, you do get, though, eventually because the other guy stops fighting as soon as he breaks a shield and he's got to pick up a shield. They're like, oh, OK, it's three shields and then whoever doesn't have the shields anymore loses. And then all of a sudden they're fighting more. It's like, oh, no, this is to the death. So you do have to follow it along. But I think the conversation that they have afterwards perfectly described that we were doing this because they've been counting our strengths and now they have to figure out you know how smart we are and and so it was for a ruse uh, and it was to make them guess because they found out that the king's son was um, conspiring against them so I, I thought that that did play out actually so I'll, I will disagree <laughs> yeah they well well they, it felt more like it was an after explanation as opposed to where in the book it felt like you, I don't know, it just felt like it was building up and it, it felt like you knew why he was doing it. And right. it felt more like you as the reader knew what was going on, whereas the narrator did not. He didn't figure it out until the very end, but you and that, as the reader I agree did. With. Um, yeah, because that's one problem I have with um, the character in the movie was Antonio Banderas was very excited, I felt like, to go on this journey with these Northmen where he was very against it in the book. And in the movie, he's started joining them way earlier than he did in the novel. Like, he's already a part of this group of these 13 people. So um, he's involved. He's helping them with the planning. You know, he, he makes his own sword. You know, there are all these other things that were not in the book. Yeah, the whole, the whole bit with the reflection. horse and uh, all of a sudden yes. he's like, I'm going to make myself useful. No, that's you were just supposed to be there. Like your entire yeah. usefulness in this is just to be the outsider that the that the their their angel of death, uh their their old woman and their um uh, their soothsayer or whatever says that they needed to have for this to be a successful mission. You're just there to be that person and then you know eventually you know, they help protect him because they want him to 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 be alive at the end to write the story because they right. they say uh, you know they don't really have writing in their culture but they know that if if someone's deeds are written about then they live forever so I felt that was a much better characterization of this person than than they did in the film the other thing that drove me absolutely nuts in the film and I understand why they did it for movie because you can't you you, you would have had to do it via voiceover or some other way if they didn't do it this way but to have him just suddenly pick up their language full for you know suddenly be instantly fluent in their language because he listened to them for a day i'm like that's not how language really works <laughs> you need a little bit more context than that i mean there are some people who are amazing linguists who are going to be able to pick up you know some of the language fairly quickly like like that and more so if they're actively being taught you know shown things but for him to just sit there and suddenly be able to not only understand them completely but also get their idioms and <laughs> things like that it's like oh that 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 was painful 
but I understand, you know, it's uh, at the same time, I look at it and say, well, how would I do it? And I don't know. <laughs> and so. I actually believe that that is the, one of the best ways I've seen for Hollywood to handle languages and films. You know, how to explain why am I listening to a Norseman or a Greek guy and he's speaking English? And I thought that was one of the best ways to handle him learning the language. I do think that it would have been better if we had like a montage of him just sitting there listening to all these conversations. And they kind of did that since he's just sitting there and listening and listening. And then all of a sudden he picks up what they're saying when they're talking about his mom and he's able to speak back. And they ask how you speak our language. He's like, I listened. But I needed to know that he listened for more than just one conversation around the fire pit. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I needed. I think it was great how they handled it and how they transitioned and that it very well explained how we're now listening to the rest of the movie in English and I don't have to have somebody there translating 97% of everything. Um, but I do wish it would have happened for a longer period that he was listening just to give more realism to the fact that he picked up the language that quick. Yeah, it it just it, it took me out of the moment. You know, I'm looking at I'm like this, but that's not how, but what? So for me, it was, I don't know, I, I it's tough you know, I look at it as I, again. It's I, I complain about it, but yet I don't know how I would have done it better. So, <laughs> well, but hey, it yes. did take it. It did take me out of the moment, and that's one of the big things I look at when I'm when reading a book or watching a movie. If something glaring takes me out of the story, it's it's harder to get back in. Um, so I, I look at things like that, and sometimes it's a, a bad CGI effect. Sometimes it's a it's a dumb sequence. Uh, sometimes it's you know just a bad piece of dialogue that doesn't belong. You know, so it, it can be any number of little things that a movie can do to just take you out of the moment, and make you remind you that you're just watching a movie instead of being immersed in a story. And the best movies don't do that. The best movies right. keep you in the story from start to finish. Yeah. No, and that's very true. And even the the CGI, which really the only time I could completely tell was in the ship, was not horrific. Yeah, you know, in the big with the ocean exception of the one the scene on the sea, I know exactly which yeah. scene you're talking yep, about. No, that was that the was one the time scene. when I looked at it and said, ooh, bad CGI is bad. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Lost a little bit on the budget there. So um, now I uh, the one part that I get why you did it, because it was Hollywood, but uh, uh by a wolf who was played by this guy Vladimir Kulich or however you pronounce his name. Um, he he had to not only fight the queen mother of uh, the Wendells, but then he has to fight their leader, and that was completely new from the book. Um, because if I recall right, pretty much they kill the queen mother and go back, and then when they have his funeral, so there's a whole extra battle that happens, which I get from a Hollywood standpoint. You really need to have that big last hurrah, and I'll tell you. I'm glad they had that in the movie because the end when they're saying everything that they say during the funeral, um, the uh, when the girl's going up and down, uh, that is one of my favorite parts because – what is it? It's a, oh, yeah, low there. Do I see my father? Low there. Do I see my mother and my sisters and my brother? And they go through the whole thing. And all of the people that are left from these 13 warriors and even um, Ahmad – joins in and starts quoting it and that's just like the great like yeah this is the last battle we're all gonna die i, I really <laughs> liked that scene well they did sort of have that in the book it, it wasn't it wasn't specifically like oh we still have to fight their leader what happened was they i i unless i'm misremembering but i felt like they came after one they came one more wave but they had been it was obvious because they, they made mention of the fact that they left their own dead behind this time 
they they were in dis- they knew that there would be no more attacks after this one because they were in disarray. They didn't even have the ability to take their dead back with them. So they knew that it was actually dead this time because they had that scene where he's almost dead, but he comes up and he's got the two ravens on his shoulder, and people are like, "Oh my gosh, it's Odin!" You know, that's they, right because it's the final revenge for the killing of their mother. So yeah, no, and they didn't have a specific right, leader like they had in the right. movie. Like we've got to kill this particular guy. It was just this one last attack in revenge, but they could tell that this was going to be the last one because they mm-hmm. didn't have they didn't have the will to continue. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, you you are right, and that's what threw me was the harp so much uh, even their soothsayer said oh you must also by the way when you're done with the mother you're gonna have to kill the leader oh damn Wait, you couldn't right, have mentioned this before away. come on um damn it <laughs> uh, so i found out something too the guy that played and i thought that this was cool just because um i was thinking of this with the musical soundtrack and everything but vladimir the guy who played uh bull i don't know beowulf's character but bullwiff or however it is in there yeah. um he actually did the voiceover in skyrim for ulfric stormcloak and so I just thought that was a cool tie-in because I was totally thinking, like, ah, oh, man, this is, like, great open-world adventure just like Elder Scrolls. And, yeah, sure enough, he was the voice of Ulfric Stormcloak in Skyrim, the, the uh, king in it. So I thought, oh, that's cool. And then he also went on to play in the Vikings TV series. And so if this was – Viking was very much so his thing. He was in Highlander back in the day um, He uh, in the 90s, so – um, he kind of has his niche, I guess. <laughs> He's got the hair for it and the look, I guess. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I haven't played that, so I, I don't know. But, yeah, uh-huh. uh, it sounds sounds fitting. I've, so, I've seen bits and pieces of the game, so mm-hmm. I th- it feels like it, it would fit. And while this was the last film that Michael Crichton had anything to do with, according to his official website, this was the last one he produced, and... Um, he really was pleased with this movie because he thinks it captures the feeling of the novel very well. And I think it captures the feeling of the adventure of the novel very well. I think it does a better job of showing it than the novel did of telling it. I think the novel was written from a different aspect, though, than uh, the film. But apparently he took over at some point and he's uncredited for it, but did some directing because he made some changes in this. So I couldn't find anything as far as details of why that had happened or why he had uh, taken over or anything like that. But one of the big things was the changing of the old woman. Yes, uh, yeah, I read about that. Um, he, originally, the, the mother of the Vendel was uh, supposed to be this old old woman, um, but they felt that it wasn't it wasn't very uh, hero-like <laughs> for these people to sneak in and kill an old woman. So yeah, they, uh, they gave lady, her a little yeah. bit of fight. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do not have it in front of me, but I tell you what, the description of the old woman in the book is the best description ever when uh, Ahmad, uh, he finds her. And I'll have to flip through and find it, but pretty much it's like, it was something along the lines of she was so old that there, um, she was sexless is what it was. It's something along those lines. Like um, he was explaining how old she was. She was so old because she was naked. She was so old she was sexless. So like she was just ancient, regally nastiness is what she was to my head. It was a very well <laughs> script in the book. It, they put the perfect horrible image in my head that I needed. <laughs> But anyway, so Michael Crichton did take over, did reshoots, and yeah, found that it was horrible to brutally kill her. And so we've got this uh, prettier one that can fight more. And um, obviously, uh, uh, Bill's character dies um, the same way in both times. You know, it's this little needle prick thing, and it's a poison is what it is. Um, you know, the only other thing, and we should bring it up because he did reach out to us um, on social media, but 
John Coster, uh, apparently really liked the movie also more than the book. Thank you very much, John, because so did I. Uh, he had the same problem you did with uh, he had a question of why was Antonio Banderas the best choice for playing a Saudi? And you probably put it well, Eric. We said he was just a darker skin tone. And so it fit. And this was the, um, you know, the high point of, for Antonio Banderas's career. So they're probably looking for, hey, let's get somebody that people know that they would want to see. And this type of a thing. Um, but also, he brings up, it's been a while since I watched the film. I'm just going to read it right off here. It's been a while since I watched the film, but I don't think the film clearly states that the Wendells are Neanderthals. Um, and he's completely correct. I don't recall yeah, don't. at any point them saying that they are Neanderthals, where it is explicitly said in the book that they are um, children of Neanderthals or something along those lines. But um, no, the only thing in the film that they really state is it is this ancient Monsters in the Mist thing, and it's not until one of the later battles that we see that it's just a man. And uh, very much so, Antonio Banderas' character, then all of a sudden, you know, he can fight because it's just a man, and he says that over and over to himself as his mantra. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's the most we really get as far as that, is that it's just these men that wear bearskins, and then later on... Um, yeah, that was the problem I had. Okay, now I'm going to find complaints about this movie. Damn it, Eric. <laughs> um, you know, Antonio Banderas' character had mm-hmm. this... Uh, he keeps having these epiphanies. Like he, he is the smartest person there, apparently, in this group of 13. Because towards the end, when they're looking for the thundering caves, he says they're acting like bears. They think they're bears. And then they're putting two and two together. Hey, where do we... Uh, how do you fight a bear? Well, how do you fight a bear when he's asleep? Well, you're sneaking his cave. And then they realize, oh, a cave, that's what the old woman said, and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So the only thing they allude to is that these Wendells are people who dress up in bears and live in a cave type of thing. Like, they just they think they're a different person. Which, to me, since I read the book, tells me that that's part of what he talks about, and uh, Michael Crichton talks about in the prologue in this thing, in the end of this book, is that he, um, you know, Neanderthals could have lived at the same time uh, Cro-Magnus Man lived. And so that's kind of what this is showing. I miss parts of the book that didn't make it into the movie, you know, like the ocean with the uh, uh, sea serpents or whatever it was, and the book that kind of alludes to this may have been a first visualization of whales, and people just weren't out in the ocean to see whales traveling, so they thought they were huge, you know, sea monsters. Um, so that was something that I missed out of the book. There was a couple of other things I'd have to think of. Um but overall, anything else you'd like to complain about this movie here, Eric? <laughs> I just, like I said, I, I felt that it took, um, yeah, honestly, it did It did the best with the story it was given. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're looking at essentially just another retelling of Beowulf, which, mm. you know, the story itself is not, to my mind, that entertaining and doesn't deserve as much uh, play as it's gotten. Um I felt the book was more interesting when I looked at it from an academic standpoint as to how it was written, why it was written, and you know the style in which it was written, as opposed to the actual story itself. Whereas the movie, uh, you know, they're just telling the story; they're they're not getting into any of this other stuff whatsoever. Um, right. And so I felt that it it lost what made the book actually interesting in the translation to the movie. So it was just another, you know, kind of bland action adventure movie that I felt there's, there's better out there as far as if you, if you're looking for just a generic action adventure movie, um, there's, there's better choices. So for me, it's, it's not that it's so bad. It's just that it's not good. No. And well, and it, I mean, it goes to show when you have to, um, 
when when initial test screenings were so bad that Michael Crichton's got to come in himself and like do reshoots and redirect, and it still is a huge flop because I think it only did like just under forty million dollars and it was over a hundred million dollar budget, and it still was a flop. Um, yeah, there are better movies out there, that is for sure. But this is not as bad as I thought it was the first time I saw it. Again, though. I would suggest if you are a person that likes the the fantasy Elder Scrolls, if you ever played any of those games or anything like that, um, that's really one of the reasons I like this. Uh, is Jerry Goldsmith? I think is who did the score. I was, I think it was Jerry Goldsmith, but he just um, did a great job with the musical score in this. And you, I really just feel like you got that sense of adventure when you've got these big sweeping uh, landscape shots and everything. Um, so I I enjoyed the movie. But it is not one that I will be watching again, uh, unlike others, you know, like the Jurassic Parks and Sphere and Timelines of the World that I've rewatched those movies numerous times. This technically is only my second time watching the movie, and technically the only reason I watched it a second time was so we could talk about it on this podcast. <laughs> so I guess that says a lot right there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not one that I would go back to. Um... Like I said, I just I just feel if I want a generic action adventure movie, there are better choices out there, um, <clears throat> and that's what, kind of what it felt like to me. It was just a generic action adventure movie. Um, if you like that particular time frame, you know, if you're into that period, the genre, um, then yeah. then yeah, it might it might jump it above other action adventure movies for you. But for me, um, definitely did not enjoy it as much as the book and. The book I really only enjoyed when looking at it at a, in a more academic way. Mm-hmm. No, and I would have to agree with you there. I I truly enjoyed the book from the academic standpoint, the standpoint of how it was written and everything like this. And this was there was I if math is correct in my head. I mean, if you take out uh, Westworlds. Um, this was the longest span. It was 23 years between the publication of the book um, and then the film. And this was the very last film that Michael Crichton had any credit on, technically, from producer, screenwriter, or director. This was the last one on his list as far as films go because he had nothing to do with Timeline or uh, or anything else. Uh, well, everything else was pretty much you know, the Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic Worlds and stuff like that that um, came out after Jurassic World came out after he had passed away. So this was uh, this was kind of his last one. I like the fact that um, if you read on his official page that he was quite pleased with this movie. Like, I like that the last one he didn't producing on, he was pleased with. I like to think in my head, like, he moved on from there and decided, you know, this one was good. I'm not going to risk it again. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I um, effed up a whole lot when I was doing a Rising Sun and then you know he went out with like Twister and Sphere and Thirteenth Warrior and then moved on with his life. So, so uh, let's talk a little bit about why this book was written. Why, Eric, do we have <laughs> this book that has really nothing to do with science or science fiction or medical dramas or anything at all like that? Why am I holding this book in my hand? <laughs> I, I think this is uh, the best thing about this this whole thing is how this book even came to be. The fact that it was quite literally a dare. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's, that to me is absolutely amazing. The fact that uh, Michael Crichton was the type of person who somebody said, I don't think you can do this. He said, oh yeah? I'm going to put years of effort into proving you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and do it in, in spectacular fashion. I mean, the way he the way he did it, I mean, like we talk about in the, the prologue to this book, talks about you know, the or I'd say the, the factual note that was added to the second publication of this book 
talks about how he came about to do this and the amount of effort that he put in to retell Beowulf in a more interesting way, to make it a more interesting story. Um, and it's just, it's absolutely fantastic the way he went about it, the way he decided that he was going to do it and set about doing it by using those first three chapters to set this uh stage where, okay, here's the writing style that I'm going with. I'm using these actual manuscripts, this real stuff that we've got here. And then from this point forward, it's Beowulf, but told as if this was the guy who saw these things happen that eventually became the poem of Beowulf somewhere in later on. Even if the right. timeline doesn't necessarily work, um, and he, he mentions that, he mentions, you know, uh, some people believe that this story is older even than this manuscript would have been. So, you know, maybe it, it couldn't have been the basis of it. But that's the that's the basically how he's going about it is saying that, OK, I'm going to say that this was the guy who saw the events that eventually became this epic poem. Mm-hmm. And he did it so well that not only did he fool quite a lot of people, I mean, we talked about how the these libraries still get <laughs> phone calls. Yeah, the and... University of Oslo still gets phone calls on this manuscript that does not exist. It was a <laughs> hoax, yeah. Um, and, you know, he went about it so well that not only did he fool other people, but as, we, as I said, he, he fooled himself a couple of times. He said there were times when he went back to the source material to find something that he had quoted and spent hours searching for it only to discover that, oh, no, that was a part that I made up. <laughs> oh, no, that was just me quoting. And so I was looking for my own quote is what that was. Yes. Um, because because yeah. uh, he said, yeah, while I was writing, I felt that I was drawing the line between fact and fiction. Clearly, he thought he was. Because, for example, one of his cited translators was Perfral Dulu, which <laughs> means in literal Latin, by trickery, deceit. So... He thought, but then, yeah, he, that's where he says, within a few years, I could no longer be certain which passages were real and which were made up. At one point, I found myself in a research library trying to locate certain references in my bibliography and finally concluding, after hours of frustrating effort, that however convincing they appeared, they must be fictitious. And um, and I think this is great. Yeah, it was on a dare uh, because his friend, Kurt Vallatson, who I looked up and produced a, uh, wrote a couple of movies and produced a couple of movies in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, he was going to teach a college course he called the great boars because he said that one of the first great boars he would address was the epic poem Beowulf and um, uh, Michael Crichton completely disagreed and said that was so great and that's what started him on this journey that we now get Eaters of the Dead and I think that it is so well done once you read the end of that and so maybe if you've never read this book before or maybe it's been a long time since you've read this book start with the end of it it's the very last little footnote um it's seven or eight pages long it looks like the a factual note on eaters of the dead start there because then you may read it a little bit differently the next time around like i wish i would have read that first just to know that it was 97% all made up, <laughs> but so well done. Yeah, like I said, reading it through uh, you know, from an academic standpoint, looking at the writing style and knowing what we know about how it was created makes it much more interesting to me. Um, this still doesn't rate highly on my list of his books. You know, it's no, still going to be just... at the bottom of the pile when it comes to, to anything I, I plan to reread in the future, but it does make it a bit more interesting to think about it in that light, I think. And I completely agree because it what it does show in light is just how great of a writer he was to be able to do such a wonderful fiction based off of a few lines of some manuscript from somewhere and make it into the story. I, it goes to his writing 
capability, but definitely not a favorite story or anything like that at all. Um, there are better ones out there, but again, yeah, just an amazing, amazing writer, and uh, so sad to, to, you know, I mean, we are still getting books today, even uh, posthumously, because he had so much going on. Um, I have not read the Dragon Teeth yet, but uh, that will be on my list, so... Yeah, uh, I neither vibe, but I do have it uh, ready to go. I'm just uh, I've got a few things, got a few things in the queue already for for reading. So, uh, including right. of course the next one that we'll be discussing, timeline. So timeline, yes, no. So I um, I want you all to reach out and let Eric know how wonderful of a movie this was for me. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, can do this. Any way you want. If you go to CrichtonCast.com and click on our contact, there is a little spot there you can just write a note on. You can be as anonymous as you want. Um, if you want to let him know how wrong he really is, please do. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at CrichtonCast. Uh, you can call us at 802-JURASSIC and leave a voicemail. Try not to be too nasty because there's a very good possibility we'll play your voicemail on our next on one of our future podcast episodes. Um, but I really, really want to know what you loved about this movie and uh, to tell us just how wrong Eric is. Eric, anything you'd like to add to that? <laughs> you know what? Uh, I, I would say go ahead and reach out to us. Uh, let, let me know how wrong I am and uh, tell me why this movie is even worse than I think it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me know the parts that were so bad that I missed that I that I blocked from my memory because they were so bad um, like like uh, like you said we're on Facebook we're on Twitter we've got the uh, the website crichtoncast.com you can email info at crichtoncast.com if that's easier or just fill out the contact form give us a call 802 Jurassic leave us a voicemail and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to hear from you regardless of uh, your feelings on either the book or the movie but also if you have any uh, insight about anything that we may have missed. We would love to hear that as well. Um, there's there's going to be things that we miss about the production of the movie or about the book or about anything in between on any of our episodes. So um, don't, don't uh, feel that it's restricted just to this one either. If you listen to one of our older episodes and you have something to say about that, let us know. We would love to right. hear from you. Yes, definitely. And uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, keep on listening. We've got plenty of other episodes on all of them. Um, I think uh, we're down towards the end, but we're going to keep talking about it. There are great, even after this is done, great books that he uh, wrote that we'll talk about and other things that he's done and Michael Crane has done in his life. But in the meantime, you go watch that movie, Eaters of the Dead, and you enjoy Antonio Banderas playing an Arab. Verily. Hey everybody, Eric here to tell you about a special promotion my charity Comicare is running. We are up for a challenge and we need your support. At Comicare, we spend all year traveling to hospitals and collecting smiles from children and their families and leave comic books behind to keep the smiles going. Well, now we want to see your smiles and we want to post them on our pages too. This July 20th through 23rd, we will bring Arizona Tony Stark to the San Diego International Comic Con and take on one of our biggest challenges yet. We will have four days to collect as many pictures as we can of smiling supporters with Tony. How many can we collect? A hundred? Three hundred? Five hundred? We'll run for the 1,000 mark, but you never know. Will you pledge a couple of pennies for each photo we collect? Just think, if you pledge just two cents per picture and we collect a hundred photos, your donation will be two dollars. If we collect a thousand, twenty dollars. Either way, a small price to pay to be part of our continuing mission. We appreciate all your support in the past and we know you will enjoy being a part of this adventure. So please visit comicare.org slash 1000smiles. That's C-O-M-I-C-A-R-E dot org slash 1000smiles. 
Visit our page, click that pledge button, and throw us a couple of cents per smile.